Good morning, Calvary. Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it can be found on page 966. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Beautiful day to be in church with you all this morning as we continue on in our sermon series from 2 Corinthians, Yet Always Rejoicing. And for the past three weeks, we have been focusing on the ministry of reconciliation, sort of a a mini-series within the larger series. And throughout this little mini-series focused on the ministry of reconciliation, I've been drawing attention to and making the point that the ministry of reconciliation is a sort of golden chain of discipleship that begins with God the Father, is extended through Jesus the Son, on to the apostles, to the church, and then out into the world. And you and I, as disciples of Jesus and members of the church, are links in this golden chain of discipleship, God's ministry of reconciliation out into the world. We're part of the church that is called to witness to the gospel and extend the message of the gospel out into the world. So we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians, looking at chapter 5, verse 20, and really all the way over to 6, verse 13, as kind of a, a whole section where Paul's ministry of reconciliation to the Corinthians there in Corinth is uh, emulated. And so we've been taking our time over the past uh, three weeks, and we continue it more this morning, looking at this passage of Scripture and Paul's example as a ministry of reconciliation to the world, as an example for us and our ministry of reconciliation to our world. And so, as we've noted in the past few weeks, we've seen eight principles, or we're working our way towards eight principles of Paul's ministry of reconciliation. Uh, We receive the gospel. That's the first principle. We need to embody the gospel. We need to make an appeal in the context of relationships. We need to remove unnecessary obstacles. We need to be willing to endure hardship. And then last week, we looked at demonstrate the Holy Spirit's transformation in our lives. And today, we pick up another principle. We've actually got two left this week and next week to get through all of them, we pick up another principle of ministering the gospel like the Apostle Paul, and that means we need to live joyfully in sorrow. We need to live joyfully in sorrow. This principle takes us to the title verse for our larger series, chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I want to look at this text this morning, these couple of verses, 
and consider how living joyfully in the midst of sorrow serves the ministry of reconciliation. All right, our passage this morning is verses 8 through 10. And starting uh, verse 8, picking up verse 8, starts in the middle of a sentence that actually began back in uh, verse 4. So to get a running start at our passage in verse 8, we back up here to the beginning of verse 4. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul is listing some negative things that commend him as a minister of the gospel. And he commends or he lists things like his beatings, his imprisonments, his hardships, and his calamities. And his point is that his willingness to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel underscores his belief in the gospel. That was our principle from two weeks ago, endure, be willing to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. And then in verses 6 and 7, he's continuing on listing things that commend him as a minister of the gospel, but the list changes and he starts to mention more positive things, things uh, that relate to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in his life. So things like love and purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. And so the whole point that he's making there in those verses is is that the Holy Spirit's transformation in his life validates the gospel's claim to be a life-changing power. So that was our principle from last week, that the, we need to demonstrate the Holy Spirit's transformation. And that brings us to this morning then in chapter, or in verse 8 and 10, where Paul's list again changes. It's interesting uh, how, these, uh, how his list uh, shifts again. And this time he seems to combine the negativity from verses 4 and 5 with the positivity of verses 6 and 7 in a sort of yin and yang pairing. So we have have what follows in in verses 8, 9, and 10 is a bunch of pairings. So look here back uh, at our text that's been read through us and recognize these pairings. In verse 8, he says, Honor and dishonor, slander and praise, treated as impostors yet true, unknown yet well-known, dying and yet behold we live, punished and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. So we're seeing all these pairings, positive and negative things put together, and each pairing has then a negative aspect and a positive aspect. And we could, if we wanted to for this sermon, we could drill down on each of these pairings and make some comments about each one in particular, but instead of looking at each individual pairing, I want to offer a way of thinking about all of them together. And we're going to do that by focusing specifically on verse 10, which is our title verse for the series, where Paul says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I want to dig into that phrase in particular. So in order to do that, and to kind of get some context for all of these, I want to offer five premises that will help us get at what Paul's underlying logic is in these pairings. And then I want to connect that then to our ministry of reconciliation. So I know this is the fifth Sunday, and many of you have brought kids to the service. I know that we got a bunch up there, and you're thinking five premises. That's like a five-point sermon. This is going to be a long sermon, and we got kids in the room. Don't worry, kids. It's going to be a shorter sermon, actually, all things considered. And 
five points or five premises, not five points. And there's actually pictures in this sermon. If you wait till we get to premise four, there'll be some pictures. So just hang on there and uh, it won't be as bad as you think. All right, so here's the first premise to note with these pairings. The first thing to note is that each pairing contains a negative earthly hardship and a positive heavenly blessing. Now, this might seem rather obvious, but it's worth noting that all of the negative aspects of these pairings are coming from Paul's earthly afflictions, not from God. So God is not slandering Paul. His earthly opponents are. God is not treating Paul as an imposter. His earthly opponents are. God is not treating Paul as unknown. His earthly opponents are. And the same holds true for all of these parents. All of the negative realities correspond to Paul's earthly hardships, and all of the positive aspects correspond to Paul's heavenly blessings. Right, so that's the first, first premise. The second premise is this. The heavenly blessings that Paul lists don't negate the earthly hardships. By pairing things in this way, Paul is helping us see that our heavenly blessings that we have in Jesus do not necessarily get rid of our earthly hardships. Yes, it's true that sometimes Jesus does step into our earthly lives and he makes our earthly lives better. And I suspect that most of us, many of us, would have stories that we could tell about how when we were in a bad spot in kind of an earthly hardship, God stepped in and he made our earthly situation better. Maybe some unexpected check in the mail or a relationship we didn't anticipate or a new job or whatever it would be. God straightened out the earthly difficulty. But that's not the point that Paul is making here with these hardship blessing pairings. The heavenly blessings are not getting rid of the earthly hardships. Paul is not saying, listen, my Jewish kinsmen, they dishonored me. But now through the blessings of Jesus, I have honor in my Jewish community again. He's not saying, I once was poor and without financial bounty, but now through the blessings of Jesus, I have earthly wealth and prosperity. The heavenly blessings that Paul has in mind and that he's listing here are not eliminating the earthly hardships. And that was the sort of logic, actually, that lay at the root of the false teaching of the super apostles that Paul was combating all throughout 2 Corinthians. The insidious teaching of the super apostles of Paul's day which is very analogous to the prosperity preachers of our day, was claiming that the blessings of heaven came into the lives of Christians and did away with the earthly trials and hardships. So are you sick? Put your faith in Jesus and he will heal you. Are you poor? Put your faith in Jesus and he will make you rich. And Jesus is offered in that frame of thinking as the one who resolves all of the earthly hardships. So in that case, there really aren't any pairings if you trust in him. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Our heavenly blessings do not always, do not necessarily or immediately resolve our earthly hardships. This leads naturally to our third premise. The heavenly blessings exist simultaneously with the earthly hardships. 
And that follows naturally from the fact that their heavenly blessings are not driving out the earthly hardships. And this is the part of Paul's logic that I find so intriguing in this passage, especially as it relates to his comments about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In all of these pairings, Paul is saying that the earthly hardship and the heavenly blessing exist simultaneously together in this life. He's saying, yes, even while I was being slandered by my Jewish kinsmen and mocked by the Gentiles, nevertheless, God praises me. He commends me in Jesus. I have hardship on earth. I have blessings from heaven. Yes, even while I was dying and being punished by earthly powers, nevertheless, I live in the power of Jesus. Yes, even while I was poor and poor and have nothing in this world, nevertheless, I possess everything in Jesus. So both sides of the pairings, the positive side and the negative earthly side are existing simultaneously. And I think, I think most of us have a category and we can imagine how it's possible to be slandered by earthly opponents on one hand, the negative side, and to be commended and praised by God on the other side, the positive side. But then we get to verse 10. This is why I want to focus on verse 10. Verse 10 says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And how does that work? I think this pairing is especially counterintuitive. All these pairings are somewhat counterintuitive. But I think this one is especially counterintuitive because both sides of the pairing the negative side, the sorrowing, and the positive side, the rejoicing, are emotional psychological terms that seem to be fundamentally at odds with each other. So how do we hold these together? And that leads to our fourth principle. And now we're getting to the meat of Paul's thoughts, and we're also getting to our pictures. See, that wasn't so bad. We're already to the pictures. Here's our fourth principle. The gospel enables us to attach our capacity for joy to Jesus while asking us to keep our capacity for sorrow still attached to the world. So we got the picture here that kind of illustrates this, right? The gospel is inviting us to attach our capacity for joy to Christ, to the things of God, but leave our capacity for sorrow still attached to the world. But this picture is not how we actually came into the world. It's not what we were born into. So we actually were born into the world looking like this next picture. And this is more typical of how it is that we are born into life. Each person is born as a human being with a capacity for joy and a capacity for sorrow. And most typically and naturally, when we're born into this world, we attach both capacities to something in this world that we trust, that we can depend on, a romantic relationship, a good job, physical safety, wealth, whatever. There are lots of things that we can attach our capacities for joy and sorrow to. And depending on where we are in our stage of life, maybe if we're younger, we're a teen, it's going to be look, we're going to attach our capacities for sorrow and joy to a, 
to our friends or to a different set of things. If we're a young adult, maybe it's a romantic relationship. If we're uh, parents, maybe it's our children or whatever it might be. Different phases in life, we kind of move our capacity for sorrow and joy to different things. But usually at any point in our life, there's one or two things that are kind of fundamentally what we've attached our capacity for sorrow and joy to. And they're both worldly objects. It's a, it's a worldly object. And as our main worldly object of love flourishes, so the thing in the world that we're loving, that is our thing that we're trusting in, when it flourishes, when it goes up, so that's the arrow there around the earth, when it goes up and it's flourishing, then our joy goes up and flourishes. But when the world, the thing that we're trusting in in the world goes down and it, it flags, then our our joy goes down and our sorrow goes up and begins to flourish. And this is why joy and sorrow, when just left to our natural selves, are inversely proportional. Because the thing that we're hoping and entrusting in, that we're depending upon, either is flourishing or it's flagging. And then our joy goes up or it goes down. And we don't know how we could be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. Now, some Christian folks think, right, see, that's a problem. This is what we were born into. This is what the gospel is saving us from. And so what we're seeing in this picture here is a picture of idolatry. The problem here is you're placing your hope and joy in the things of this world. But we're called to die to the world, and we should be placing our hope and joy in Christ. And so we adopt this posture. Look here at this next figure. In this figure, the Christian transfers his or her capacity for both joy and sorrow over to Christ, believing that this will make them immune to the fluctuations of the world. So then when the world flourishes and it goes up, they're unmoved, they're indifferent. When the world flags and falters, they're unmoved, they're indifferent. And since their joys and sorrows are all attached to Jesus, and Jesus is always up and never down, then they figure that they will always be rejoicing, and there's never any sorrow. But this isn't actually what Paul is quite saying. Because verse 10, he's saying he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And the problem with this picture, it doesn't have any sorrow, right? Where it's immune to sorrow. The gospel is calling us back to this first picture that we looked at. The gospel is calling us to place our capacity for joy in Jesus while leaving our capacity for sorrow in the things of this world. But how does that work? And that brings us then to our fifth principle. The heavenly blessing that enables us to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, the heavenly blessing that God gives us, that enables us to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, is Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't give us a gift that enables us to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. Jesus is the gift that enables us to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. It's as he enters into our life and we experience his nearness in his presence that joy and rejoicing is born in our heart. 
When I got to this point in the sermon, I was trying to think of words that I could use to describe what, it, what it's like to have Jesus in our lives, his presence in our lives. But trying to describe the blessing of Jesus' presence is like trying to describe what a color tastes like. Right? You, you can't do that for all sorts of reasons. It's impossible. How do you put into words what a color tastes like? A color doesn't taste like anything, and if it did, you couldn't describe it with words. Words can only gesture in the right direction. The experience of Jesus, the presence of Jesus in our lives, it's beyond human words. And if you've met Jesus, if you've had that encounter with Jesus, then you know what I'm talking about. Because once you've tasted the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of His presence, His loving, caring presence, then you understand, even if you can't explain it, you understand how it's possible to rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. Over the Christmas, New Year's break, we had a couple of services where we invited people to come up and share. And I can't remember if it was in the Christmas service or the New Year's Day service, but there was a family member who had come in from out of town, was just visiting with us that day. And so during the testimony time, she came up and she shared about this past year. And she shared how her husband of 40 years had died that year and how they, were, uh, they had a, a beautiful marriage and how she missed him uh, desperately. And at the funeral, though, she said while she was grieving the loss of her husband, Jesus' grace and his presence and his ministry was so palpable to her that she was rejoicing at the same time. And she was able to articulate at least the experience, even if she can't explain it, the experience of rejoicing and sorrowing simultaneously, grieving the loss of her husband while rejoicing in the presence and the nearness and beauty of Jesus. The other situation that comes to my mind that illustrates this powerfully for me in any case is I went uh, with John Houghton, one of our members here. We did a, a sort of mini civil rights tour down to Montgomery, just him and I, and we looked at a number of the, the sites down there. And there's a museum called the Legacy Museum. And if you've not been to the Legacy Museum uh, and you get a chance to go to Montgomery, you really just should go. It's just a remarkable museum. But the museum chronicles the history of the African-American people from the beginning of the North Atlantic slave trade uh, and the, the uh, um, captivity of slaves in Africa across the Atlantic over into the, into the colonies and the states and then the experience of African-American people in our country all the way up to the present day. And it's a powerful museum. And as you walk through the museum, there's kind of each room, as it were, uh, is a uh, sort of, a, it's another phase in the history of African American people. And there was one a room that you walk into, and it it felt very much like a barn, and it had what appeared to be almost cattle stalls uh, in the barn that were barred off. So uh, these were the the cages where the slaves were kept while they were waiting to be sold uh, to the at, to the plantation owners. And you could walk up to each uh, uh, stall, as it were, and the museum had. Are very ingeniously constructed like holograms. So life-size holograms would emerge, and when you approach the stall, a person would walk towards you and begin to talk to you. 
and they would ask you questions or they would describe their experience. And it's very powerful and moving to see children come forward and ask if you could go find their mother and, and, uh, and, and, and men who have been enslaved and women who have been enslaved. And, but the very last stall as you're walking down, there was a, an older woman sitting in the stall and she uh, doesn't approach you when you come, but she begins to sing. And she's singing an old spiritual and it's so full of the suffering and the pain of her people. Yet, at the same time, it's so full of the joy and the hope of Jesus. And in her experience, she's holding together at the same time the sorrow and the rejoicing that comes because of Jesus. So her earthly sorrow, it's still in the things of this world. She's still lamenting and grieving the loss that has come to her and her people, but it hasn't clouded out or taken away the joy that comes from heaven. And the two come together in this fusion that creates this beauty, this profound beauty and testimony of the gospel. To feel two contradictory emotions at the same time Two emotions that in any other natural circumstance cannot exist together. That's the beauty and the glory and the joy of living in the life of Jesus. And some things in this world are truly worth sorrowing over. Truly. And it's not just because we're we're weak in faith, but in the same way that Jesus wept over Lazarus' tomb. Or the same way that he wept over Jerusalem when they rejected him and the salvation that he brought. There remains in this age true and profound sorrows that we're not only allowed to grieve over, but we are encouraged to grieve over in the same way that Jesus grieved over the losses and sufferings of this world. Because fundamentally, to fail to grieve is to fail to love, to ascribe value and worth to the thing that we are grieving over. But even in the midst of our sorrows, even in the midst of our grieving, Jesus invites us to put our capacity for joy in Him. He is eternal love. He is infinite beauty. He is the fullness of joy. And His presence in our lives doesn't remove all of the earthly sorrow and hardship, but his love and kindness and his goodness is so potent that it can, as we open ourselves up to him, it can infuse all of our earthly sorrows and hardships, and it can even infuse all of our earthly blessings and joys with God's own eternal joy, filling it up like water fills up a sponge. The trial and sufferings and sorrows remain. They're still there, but so is the joy because Jesus is there and he himself is the joy that God gives into the world. So even at the same time that we're grieving the loss of a loved one or a difficult marriage or the death of a child or a job or pick any earthly sorrow that you can think of, that we grieve At the same time, we can simultaneously experience the presence and the love and the joy of Jesus. And that's what it means to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. All right, now let's connect this then to the ministry 
of reconciliation. Why is this essential to our ministry of reconciliation? Well, when we as Christians live with joy in Jesus and yet leave our capacity for sorrow and grieving in the losses and difficulties of this world, that is a profound witness to the reality of Jesus. When we encounter Jesus and we experience Him for who He is and we place our joy in Him, in that way we're testifying that the true life and joy of the world lies outside of the world, that it's beyond us, it's, it's in God alone. And that's, that's a testimony of the gospel. But at the same time that we are placing our joy in Jesus and leaving our capacity for sorrow in the things of this world, we are leaving the love of God in the world. Jesus instructs us, the scriptures instruct us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, because that's how we love people. We meet them in the midst of their loss and their pain and their suffering, and then we express the love of God to them. The broken and suffering world around us, the world that we still live in, it needs compassion. And we are not able to express compassion if we try to cut ourselves off from the world's sorrows. If we try to detach ourselves and our capacity for sorrow from the things of this world, then we neuter our capacity to meet people in their pain and to love them. So you see the figure. Go back to figure of the figure, first figure, the first picture, right? The very first picture we looked at. Do you see that this picture is what Jesus himself modeled for us when he came to earth and embodied God's ministry of reconciliation. He left his joy, he kept his joy, uh, his capacity for joy attached to the eternal divine nature. That's where his joy came from. But he voluntarily, willingly, in love, attached his capacity to the world and all of our sorrows. And he came to us and he met us in our sorrows. And he met us in our loneliness and in our weeping. And he wept with us and he grieved with us and he sorrowed with us to show us the love of God. And Paul did the same thing. Paul, this is what we're seeing all throughout 2 Corinthians. He rejoiced always, but even while he was rejoicing, he continued to worry and to weep about the churches that he loved. And this is what we are called to do as we follow the example of Jesus and the example of Paul, the apostle, to attach our joy to Jesus so that it remains unshakable, yet leave our capacity for sorrow attached to the world so that we can love those who are in it and suffering. And God help us, that's very hard to do. It's hard to find joy in Jesus while keeping ourselves open to sorrow. Sometimes I think, I know for myself, I'd rather just go find joys in Jesus and not have to worry about sorrow. I don't want to have to bother with sorrow. But to cut myself off from sorrow is to cut myself off from the capacity to love. And the world needs the love of God. It's hard to do. God is very gracious, though. He's very patient with us as we learn to place our joy in Jesus even while we yet love and sorrow over the pains of this world. 
Maybe for you it's the opposite of me. Maybe you're not trying to cut yourself off from sorrow. It's just hard to find your way to joy. And so you just kind of live in the sorrow, but you don't know how to get over to the joy. God is very gracious with you as well. And the true fullness of joy is when these things are held together. Because as we cut ourselves off from sorrow, we're also in also cutting ourselves off from joy. And as we cut ourselves off from joy, we're cutting ourselves off from true spirit-filled sorrow that turns into love. And it's the mark of maturity that God calls us to hold on to both of these things together. So this morning, which is no different than every single morning that we wake up, Jesus invites you and I into a deeper and more intimate relationship with him where he meets us in the midst of our pain He meets us in the midst of our sorrow. He feels and experiences and connects with us in our sorrow. And yet he never loses his joy. And he invites us in to his joy. And it's as our lives more and more reflect our confidence, the infinite worth and goodness of Jesus and his presence and care in our lives that we're able to embrace all the complexities of this world and enter not only into other people's sorrows, but even maybe to enter into our own sorrows that we hold at bay. And in doing so, we commend the gospel to others. We're going to close with singing a song we've sung before here. It's called What Love My God. And this song, in many ways, celebrates and affirms Jesus' model of holding together sorrow and rejoicing. He enters into our world of pain. He doesn't make himself immune to it. And yet he never loses his joy, which is why we can find joy in him. So as we close this song out, be reminded of how Jesus embodies this ministry of reconciliation and be invited back into the space of holding him in a way that allows us to rejoice and sorrow at the same time. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus, who is uh, the great end the great model, the great archetype of all that you call us to be. And God, I pray that you would give us grace to to hold on to him, to find our deepest joy in him, and yet to not lose sight of love, to be able to continue to minister and care for the people in this world that need uh, your touch. So God, help us to find our uh, experience of Jesus. We can't make this happen on our own. We can't conjure him up like rubbing a genie in a bottle. Lord, we, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to see you, to see Christ for who he is. Fill us with your spirit so we have eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.